Hey, let me thank you again for having me this morning. Um, it's a great pleasure to be at Seven Mile Road. I have attended here one time some years ago. Um, it's nice to be back. Uh, and more recently, we were part of Easter outreach that was a combination between what will soon be Liberty Northeast and Seven Mile Road, where we were able to feed 60 families in the area. And that was um, really fantastic. It was really great to be a part of that. Um, to work with Benu and um, just see people being blessed by by the Lord. And so um, it was a really, really nice time. Um, I'm happy to be back here preaching for the first time. Uh, yeah, Liberty Network is, uh, as Benu said, nine churches. Uh, and as I point out, we'll have one in Montgomery County. Hopefully Northeast will make 11. So we have a few in Philadelphia, Fairmount, Center City, Mainline, Fishtown, we just keep going, and then we also have one in Collingswood, New Jersey, and one in Harrisburg. So if you could be praying for us, uh, we really love you guys. Um, and as you know, like when you're planning a church, uh, you're oftentimes looking for a space to meet. And you guys are always a story that we always tell that we're super jealous of. We say like, you know, it'd be great if one day we're like just this older church just said, here's our building and this like one acre of land. Is it one acre? Huh? Eight acres of land. <laughs> we need to change the story. We've been telling it wrong. Eight acres of land just to give it to us uh, on a nice, nice discount. Um, and we would be set. We'd be golden. So we always like, but that's what happened at Seven Mile Road. It could happen for us. And it's yet to happen for any of our churches. But um, we've only been shooting for one acre of land. So to, we have been selling the Lord short. So it's great to be here today. So if you have your Bibles or your iPhone or a less superior smartphone, if you could open that to John chapter 11. That was a joke, guys. All smartphones are great. Uh, we're going to talk a lot today about tragedy, about hardship. Uh, and when tragedy strikes and hardship strikes, um, we oftentimes treat Jesus like he doesn't get it, like he doesn't understand. And so that my title for my sermon today is When Jesus doesn't get it. And if you aren't a Christian, if you're just here today, you're kind of checking this Jesus thing out. You're not really sure how you feel about him. He says some interesting things. He preaches, gets like a large crowd, and then like says something to scare everybody away. And you're like, I'm not sure what's up with this guy. Um, that's who Jesus is. But we are well, we are very excited that you're here. It's a bold step to even walk into a church, and we know that. And so thank you for being here. And this, we're going to use a lot of conversation that's going to be um, kind of some insider language, but we don't want you to check out. I do want you to listen because tragedy, if anything, that we all can kind of share in common is that tragedy and hard times hit all of us. We're not going to get away from it. It's going to be something that's going to hit us at some point in our lives. So as common experience as humans is tragedy and hardship. And I know you're like, thank you, guy, for coming and telling me that life's going to be hard, but there's some good news too. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, as we approach these words, may we approach them with reverence because these are the words of the God of the universe, the God of the universe who speaks to us, but the same God of the universe who speaks down on one knee as we speak to our own children because you desire to call us your friends and your children. And even though you're the God of the universe, you care about us in that way. 
And so, Lord, um, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you open our ears, that those who have ears would hear, and that these things would sink into our hearts and change us for the glory of your Son. It's his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was the first pastor in my family. And when you're the first pastor in your family, you find that you're often invited to do different things. Like, for instance, you're invited to pray for the food at parties or um, around Christmas time. They want you to read the Christmas story, uh, not the one where the kid with the leg lamp and all that jazz, but uh, the, the Luke chapter 2 story to all the kids. And um, you're oftentimes asked questions about Bible verses or things that people have read online or the, the most fun conversations I have are about like the History Channel's perspective on the Bible. And those are really great conversations to have. And I love having those conversations and I love doing those things. And they're really, really important. And it's been fantastic in being a pastor in a family um, that really seeks the Lord. It's been great. And oftentimes, uh, and there have been other times where I've been asked to do weddings of people in my family, and, and that's been wonderful too. But there also have been times where I've been asked to do funerals. And the strange part of early on, particularly in my pastoral career, let's call it, uh, in my early 20s, where I actually at one point had done more funerals than I had done weddings. So I had, I had like three or four funerals in the bag, so to speak. It might be a bad way of saying it, but in the bag before I finally did a wedding. So here's me in my early 20s speaking a lot of funerals. There were, it was very interesting to be a part of that. And in fact, after about a 10-year battle with breast cancer, we actually lost my mom in 2012 uh, to, that, to that horrible disease. And um, it was really tough. And I was asked to speak at the funeral. And, and that was really challenging because death and tragedy really have funny, has a funny way of finding us wherever we are. Has a funny way of drawing us in and surrounding us, and we can't get away from it. And in these moments, we have a propensity, and it's an okay propensity. God invites these things for us to ask questions. Where are you, God? Does he even exist? How can a loving God allow someone to go through so much pain? How can someone with so much faith be so let down? Where was God when my mom died? Where was God when my friend's marriage fell apart? Where was God when my friends have abandoned me? So it's not unusual for Martha and Mary to expect the same of Jesus. What do they say? Martha and Mary say in different places. Martha, first one, verse 21, Jesus comes and she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What we see from the story of Lazarus' resurrection is a story much like our own when we face tragedy and death. A story full of skepticism and blame. Both sisters are skeptical that Jesus could possibly do anything at this point. Right? Lazarus is dead. People don't come back from the dead. That just is not something that happens. And they blame. They blame Jesus for not showing up sooner. And as we see from what we just read, Martha is the first to meet Jesus. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But unknown to Martha 
is that Jesus has one goal in mind. To give God the glory through raising Lazarus from the dead. However, Martha's take is kind of interesting. Martha feels the need to remind Jesus. If you look at the, if you enter the story here, that she feels the need to remind Jesus of the correct Jewish belief. Martha, as a good Jew, reminds Jesus that all followers of Jesus, or excuse me, all followers of the true God, will be physically resurrected when God brings in his kingdom. She says that. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, in verse 23, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha is skeptical of Jesus' timing, but she lightens the blow, softens the blow by saying all the right things to Jesus. She believes all the right stuff. She believes he's the Messiah. She believes in the future resurrection. But she fails to understand what's happening right now, who Jesus is and what he will do. In my previous position, uh, before I moved to a new position at the University of Pennsylvania, um, so if you're like, oh, no, this guy, poor guy, he's, has no money, and he's just like, just living off crumbs. I do have a full-time job, so don't worry. But one day, hopefully, I'll be able to transition out of that. But right now, I'm working at Penn. I worked at this other university, which is nearby, which shall remain nameless, but some people here work there, so you, and some people go to school there, so you can start to figure it out. But I worked with college students, and I had a ton of college interaction, and I, at times, had to have disciplinary conversations with students. And it amazed me the number of times I would have conversations with a student and ask them why they did what they did, and they would attempt to give me the answer they thought I wanted to hear. And so whether it was to get out of trouble or just to get out of my office, they quickly jumped to saying all the right things, even though they didn't believe it. And many of us who followed Jesus for quite some time have a soft place in our heart for people like Martha. When pain hits us, when tragedy strikes, when death knocks on our doorstep, we see Jesus presented with this insolvable problem. So we, deep down inside, are skeptical of Jesus' power. But we say all the right things. We think God will somehow be honored with our lip service. So when Tragedy hits us. We say, well, God's all-powerful. God has a plan. And if a person dies, we say, oh, don't worry. One day we'll see them again. But deep in our hearts, we don't buy it. We, like Martha, think Jesus just doesn't get it. He's aloof. He's disconnected. He's absent. And if he would have been here, this would never have happened. But Jesus, being Jesus, responds to Martha. Even though she gives him the right Jewish belief, he says to her, I am the resurrection and life. Jesus provides her with this opportunity to have faith. He asks her, do you believe this? But because Martha is a good Jew, she gives Jesus what she thinks he wants to hear. If you notice, Martha never answers Jesus correctly. She keeps giving him what he wants, she thinks he wants to hear. But her heart is still skeptical that Jesus could possibly do anything at this point. What could he do? 
And for many of us, we talk a big game about Jesus. We tell others, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. He holds the whole world together. He, brings, he will bring all things to completion. And we raise our hands at worship at church. And we have, as far as we know, we have the most theologically correct prayers out of anyone at church. And we, unlike everybody else, the Lent posers that walk around who give up stuff for Lent for like a week and then they go back to normal, we actually gave up stuff for the whole 40 days. We're real Christians. And we talk this big game about Jesus. We act like his life shapes our own. But when Jesus wants to use our tragedy as an opportunity for us to have faith, we treat him just like another guy who's giving us some good advice. But he couldn't possibly do anything for the real problems of this world. Jesus can't resurrect one person in the middle of history. That's insane. That's not right. That's not correct according to my reading of the Bible. That's supposed to happen in the future, Jesus. And we say things like, oh yes, Jesus, he can save me from my sins, but there's no way he could save my relationship with my wife. Sure, sure, Evan, I hear what you're saying. I believe Jesus can resurrect people. Sure, fine. But he can't free me from my sexual addiction. Yeah, sure, I know Jesus calls us to forgive our enemies, but you have no idea how much that person hurt me. So Jesus isn't our Lord. He's just aloof. He just doesn't get it. And how could he? He doesn't understand my situation. He can't expect me to be like him in everything, can he? He can't really expect you to forgive the person who hurt you so deeply. He can't really expect you to avoid temptation. I mean, everybody's going to mess up once in a while. He must not have meant what he said. Or he can't do what he said he will do. He can't possibly be any help after my brother died. And now Mary, Martha's sister, comes and she throws herself at Jesus' feet. But like her sister, she questions Jesus' timing too. Lord, if you had been here. And these sisters are not only skeptical of Jesus' ability to do anything at this point. Martha has done a great job at giving Jesus the answers she thinks he wants to hear. But these sisters also blame Jesus for what happened. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. Thanks a lot. My oldest son, his name's Evan, too. So as I tell this story, it's not an inner dialogue I have with myself. We actually have another person named Evan in this world. He really enjoys playing with his older sister and the other kids in the neighborhood. And once in a while, I'll be inside, uh, like, reading a book, not watching Netflix or something like that. But I'll be inside, and all of a sudden, I'll hear him yelling, You're cheating! That's not fair! You're cheating! You're not playing right! I go, oh, geez. She call him in. So I say, hey, 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 Evan, come in, buddy. What, what's going on? It's like, they're cheating. They're not playing fair. 
That's not right. They can't do that. And as I start to investigate a little further, it's clear to me that no one's actually cheating. He's just losing. And when he's hit with losing, he blames others. And many of us respond this way. Whether we're Christians or not, we respond this way to hardship. Someone has to take the blame. Someone has to take the fall. Someone has to have an answer for this. When we start losing, when things aren't going our way, it can't possibly be anything we did. It must be someone else. Someone's cheating. Someone isn't playing right. And as many times we do this, we just can't find a person to blame. And so we blame God. God, where are you? God, where were you when my mom suffered and died from cancer? God, if you'd been there, I wouldn't have fallen into addiction. God, if you were there, my husband wouldn't have walked out on me. God, if, if, if. And much like Martha and Mary and the others there, we are so often... I am so often wrapped up in my present situation that I forget what Jesus has done in the past and will do in the future. We forget because we create a picture of what Jesus is like now for us. What have you done for me lately, Jesus? And as his followers, Mary and Martha, they saw Jesus do great things. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him heal people. Even the people mentioned that he healed people who were blind. But their brother's dead now. Jesus should have been here earlier. He doesn't get it. Because if he got it, this would have never happened. Jesus has done great things in the past, and still he will do great things for us in the future. But what we like to do is we like to define Jesus not by the whole picture, what he's done in the past and what he's going to do in the future. We define Jesus with our present reality, our present tragedy. But our present reality does not define who Jesus is. Jesus defines our present reality. What I'm going through right now doesn't help anyone or me determine who Jesus is. Jesus is constant. Jesus doesn't change. Jesus is the same. So what's wrong? My reality has to be defined by the constant Jesus. Jesus stands in front of us as the resurrection and the life. He calls us to believe. He calls us. He says, I want to give you life and life to its fullest. And yet we can't see it because we think what's happening now is who Jesus is and not in fact the resurrection, not in fact the life, not in fact the Son of God, not in fact the Christ. He is just another absent person. He just doesn't. Get what I'm going through. He doesn't get how to fix it. Jesus just doesn't get it. 
And what's beautiful about this story, right, as we continue to read, is that no one believes Jesus. No one does. No one believes he can do anything about this. But here's what's the good news. Jesus does it anyway. He's going to do it anyway. The point is not the tragedy, Lazarus' death. The point is what Jesus will do with the tragedy. When you experience tragedy, when you experience hard times, the point is not the tragedy. The point is what Jesus will do with your tragedy. The point is what Jesus will do with your hardship. The point is not your present pain, worry, fear, loneliness, your broken heart, your broken dreams, your broken relationships. The point is what Jesus is going to do with your present pain. What he's going to do with your worry. What's he going to do with your fear? What's he going to do with your loneliness, your broken dreams? What's he going to do with your broken heart and your broken relationships? So Jesus, despite the potential of everyone losing their lunch over the smell of the body, which has been in the tomb for four days, he says, roll the stone away, and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And if you answer a story, like, I know we, maybe you've heard this story before. If you answer a story, do you, do you, like, you understand, like, how crazy this is, right? Like, no one has gone to the cemetery this week and tried to call anybody out of the ground, right? This is nuts. And even Jesus is nuts. Nobody believes him. He's doing it anyway. And he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out. And there's Lazarus. Once dead, now alive. See, when from my perspective, Jesus doesn't get it, or from your perspective, when Jesus seems aloof, or he seems like he's not getting the whole picture, Jesus can't be stopped. He's relentless. Jesus has one goal in mind, to bring glory to God through the resurrection of Lazarus. He's so moved by compassion, he shows love to his skeptics. He shows love to those who are blaming him for not coming soon enough. He offers them love, and he doesn't expect to get it back. Jesus offers us love. He doesn't expect to get it back. But he has one goal in mind, and that's to bring glory to God in the middle and with our reality. When we offer Jesus skepticism, he offers us love. When we offer blame to Jesus, he offers us love. He has one goal in mind. He wants to glorify the Father in spite of our deficiencies. He offers us love even when we can't give it back to him. He offers us love when we're just giving him lip service and telling him what we think he wants to hear. He calls out to us. He says, cast all your anxiety upon me for I care for you. He lovingly reminds us, behold, I'm going to make all things new. One day, I'll wipe every tear from your eyes, and there'll be no more sorrow or pain or grief, for I am yours and you are mine. So when we doubt, he believes. When we despise him, he loves us. When we blame, Jesus, you, you weren't there. You really let me down, Jesus. He takes our present reality and uses it to glorify God. And as the story of Jesus continues in the Gospels, 
Jesus, the one who shows love to Martha and Mary, finds himself facing death. Death finds Jesus like it finds all of us. It's not that Jesus doesn't get it. He most certainly does. The end of his life becomes a tragedy. It's filled with abandonment, betrayal, denial by his friends. He stands in front of kangaroo courts with false accusations. He's mocked and he's abused by his enemies. And while, get this, while he's hanging on the cross, the same people who say, hey, couldn't this man who healed the blind and gave sight to the blind save Lazarus? They say, hey, you saved others. Why don't you save yourself? Go ahead. Come down from the cross. And he's mocked. And he takes the weight of the world on his shoulders. He shares the sin. He carries the sin of generation upon generation on the cross and experiences his father's absence. God feels absent to Jesus. He becomes sin so we can become children of God. He dies our death so that we might live. But unlike Lazarus, who eventually will die again, Jesus goes through death and comes out the other side. And in his resurrection, we can experience freedom from sin that so entangles us. We are free from worry and anxiety and loneliness. Jesus, the one who experiences the world's greatest tragedy, there's probably no one in life that's given so much to the world that Jesus did, and he still experiences the world's greatest tragedy. And his death and resurrection becomes the sign of God's greatest victory. And because of what Jesus has done, my tragedy, your tragedy, like the tragedy of Martha and Mary, can also become signs to the world of God's victory. As I close, I want to share a story with you. Soon after my mother passed away, uh, I went to the graveside. And part of going through grief is that at some point you get angry. And I was pretty angry at God, and I felt like we needed to have a talk. So I went to the graveside. And uh, I decided to take my anger out on a nearby tree. So I grabbed a branch that was on the ground. And I just started smacking the tree. And I'm like, God, where were you, God? You killed my mom, God. You let me down. Now my kids won't have their grandmom anymore. I won't have my mom to ask my, about her, about my kids growing up. I'll have none of that. You let me down. You screwed up, God. How dare you? And I stepped back. And I looked at the tree, and the tree at that point, I beat up the bark pretty bad. And I felt the Lord say to me, what's that look like to you, Evan? Do you think it looks like my son's back? It's like, Evan, I, I get it. I know it's hard. I know what it's like to lose someone you love. But I love you. And know that I'm going to use this for my glory. And I don't know where you are. I don't know if you've experienced tragedy today, this week, or in the past year. But I know one day you will. And there's going to be times where you're going to say, Jesus, you just don't get it. May you know that Jesus loves you so much. That God loves you so much. He's going to use your tragedy for his glory. Trust in him.
And when you're faced with skepticism or you want to blame him, know, one, that he invites it, but he loves you so much to not leave you there and to use this and turn it into God's victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, what he has done for us, how he is, how he bore our sins on the cross, how he experienced pain so he knows what we have gone through. We don't worship a God who's just absent from pain, doesn't know what it's like, but we worship a God who's experienced it. So we thank you so much for your son. Thank you for Seven Mile Road. I pray that you continue to bless this church that it would be a beacon of your victory, that it would be a beacon of your hope. And I thank you um, so much for having them welcome me here today. And I thank you for all you're doing in each of our lives. And, we, and I do pray for the people who are going through tragedy right now, hardship right now, that even though it's hard for them to trust, that you would be present and close to them and you would use this for your glory anyway. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You were broken for the broken You laid down your life that I might live A sacrifice so undeserved All I have to you I give
Thank you for your blessings, Lord. Thank you for your mercies, Lord. Help us uh, uh, to live a life, Lord, that, that will be worth, uh, worth a, a, of the calling that you have for us, Lord. Um, we just give you thanks uh, for, for your blessings, Lord. Amen. Let my song join the one that never 
Cause he lives.